This is an ABC podcast. In 2018, Sarah Centillus became a mother. A beautiful baby girl named Coco joined Sarah and her husband Eric in their home in the mountains in Idaho. But the circumstances of this new family were unusual. Coco was a foster child whose biological mother wasn't able to care for her. So as Sarah and Eric loved and cared for Coco, and as she grew and started to smile and got her first tooth and learned to play peekaboo, Sarah always knew there may come a time when she would have to lose Coco so that she could return to her birth mother. The journey she went on was both more heartbreaking and more joyous than she could have ever imagined. Her book is Stranger Care, and if you have had first-hand experience of adoption, do take care listening to this story. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Tell me about the place that you live now. What's it look like? I live in a most beautiful place. It's springtime in the mountains now, so all the tender leaves of the aspen and the cottonwoods are coming out. I live in a valley called the Wood River Valley. We have the Big Wood River running through and um, mountain ranges all around, and We have mountain lions, elk, deer, all different kinds of wildlife here, lots of birds. It's a gorgeous mountain town um, that has been a a huge source of solace for me. It's springtime now, but what's it like in winter? How cold does it get? Very cold, (laughs) but it's a dry cold, so it doesn't feel that cold. I, you know, I lived in Boston as well and uh, in Portland and a Portland 45 feels like a Idaho negative (laughs) 10. You and your husband, Eric, met each other at college, so you've known each other for a long time. And some people are very clear about whether or not they want to have children. That's something they know right from the start. Was that the case for you and Eric? I always imagined myself as a mother, but I was kind of busy doing other things and busy denying that that was something that was important to me. You know, I went to graduate school. I got a doctorate. Um, We were traveling around chasing academic jobs. Uh, writing books, you know, trying to figure out who we were and how we wanted to be on the planet. And I didn't really admit to myself for quite some time that being a mother was was my deepest longing. And by the time I was ready to admit that, you know, I think of myself as a, a feminist. I am a feminist, a strong, <laughs> radical feminist, uh, but I hadn't been really saying what I what I wanted for quite some time. And by the time I did admit that I wanted to be a mother, to have a baby, I realized I was married to someone who was an environmentalist and he did not want to bring another human being onto the planet. Um, he thought there were enough humans and wanted to take care of a child that already was in the world. And so foster care became our common ground. You know, he didn't know that I had been swallowing my desires and not saying what I needed. He thought he was married to someone who was saying what she wanted. And so we had to remake this equal partnership. So once the two of you decided that you weren't going to try for a biological child, what did Eric decide to do? Yeah, he he decided, we decided together that we would adopt. Um, I had been, the question, do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? was running through my mind. And and one day it shifted, which was, do I want to be a parent? And I realized it wasn't important to me necessarily to, I didn't need to be pregnant. I didn't need to give birth. I just wanted to be a mother. And so Eric scheduled a vasectomy and I went along with him and he got the vasectomy. And I think literally on that same day, his sister called to tell us that she was pregnant and everything in my body rebelled. I wanted it to be me calling to tell someone that I was pregnant. I wanted it to be my baby. I wanted to be having a baby with Eric. And um, I didn't say that. I didn't say that out loud. And we went through with the procedure and then it was done. And by the time I did say to Eric, I want to have a baby and I want to have a baby with you, um, it was too late. So we had to find another way. And of course, I think particularly for women, there's all the pressure and the curiosity that comes from the outside and the question, the question, do you have kids? How do you feel about that question in particular? I hate that question so much. I mean, I know it's a people are just asking because they're interested. They don't mean anything by it. But do you have kids always? I think for people who have suffered miscarriage, who have had children die, who have placed children for adoption, anyone who has an unusual story to parenthood or away from parenthood, it's a painful question. Um, and I'm much more interested in asking, tell me about your family. We are all already part of families. We're not starting anything. You might be expanding a family or you know, shifting your sense of what your family looks like. So I think I'm much more interested in the question, tell me about your family. 
So after many conversations and some back and forth between you and Eric, you did begin this process of becoming certified as foster parents. How were you vetted to see whether you'd be suitable or not? It's a pretty, it's a fairly invasive process. You know, whenever I would complain about the process, Eric would say, well, you know, they're trusting you with a child. It should be as invasive as possible. Um, but they asked a lot of questions and were worried about a lot of things that, that don't seem to matter much in terms of whether you'll be a good parent, like your dating history. Um, you have to draw a family tree. They want to know your relationship to drugs and alcohol. Um, we began the process in Oregon when we were living in Portland, Oregon, and two social workers would show up at our house fairly regularly and they'd divide Eric and me. They'd ask me questions on, on one floor and Eric questions on another floor. And Eric was much smarter about the whole thing. He treated it like a game. He was charming. He cracked jokes. He was funny. They loved him. And I became the, uh, a weirdo. I just was like a good girl performer, overachiever weirdo. And any of it, and we had to fill out, I think, like a 50 page questionnaire. And I remember one time sitting at the kitchen table with one of the social workers, and she had the questionnaire out, and she had it different parts highlighted. And I didn't know, is the highlighting good? Is the highlighting bad? You know, and she, she would just question me, why are you in so much therapy? You're a perfectionist. What are you going to do when your adopted child only makes C's? You know, what's the right answer to that question? Do you want to say, I would push them to do better? That makes you sound crazy if you say, <laughs> I would just let them be, then that makes it sound like you don't think that they deserve all the possible supports. It was just every question to me felt like a trap and I think I did not do well. There were also seminars and classes with other prospective foster parents and in one seminar you had to introduce yourself and say something that you like <laughs> doing. How did your answer compare with the other people in that room, Sarah? Uh, I should say this was when we were in Idaho and we had um, the we had to drive to a town that's just south of us called Jerome and the foster care training classes were in the upper room of a, of a car dealership. So already it was strange. But in the beginning, they asked, tell us something you love to do. And my mind literally went blank. And people around the room were like, I'm so-and-so. I like to hunt. I like to hunt. I like to hunt. I like to hunt. Like everybody said that. When it got to me, all I could come up with it was, my name is Sarah and I love to read. <laughs> <laughs> and Eric, just I heard him under his breath go, Jesus. You know? <laughs> Eric came up with the better answer, which was, I like to car camp. So then I became the class joke. Anytime we had to read something out loud or there was homework, they'd be like, ooh, Sarah, you get to read. <laughs> so your, your worldviews or at least your hobbies might have differed from, from the other prospective foster parents. But were your motivations similar? Were, were you coming from similar places? It was a beautiful set of human beings in that room. You know, once I could let go of all my outer judgment about who they are, who they might be, they were there to take care of, for the most part, relatives or people, um, children in their families that needed a place to stay. Eric and I were there to take care of strangers, children we were not related to. And in the foster care system, the name for that is non-relative care provider or stranger care. And it's such an alienating term for such an intimate task. Mm. Well, how many kids are in foster care in the US? Half a million, 500,000 children are in the foster care system in the United States on any given day. And do most of those kids stay in foster care? Um, it, it ranges. The percentage of children who are reunified is around 50%, which means they're, they're returned to their biological families. But sometimes they'll be in for a few days, sometimes they'll be in for years, sometimes they'll never be returned. So you and Eric went through this long and, and intimate and sort of strangely bureaucratic process of being vetted to become foster carers. And then one night your landline rang and you were offered your first foster placement. What could they tell you about the child? We were advised to keep a list of questions by the phone of things we were comfortable with and things we weren't comfortable with, um, which is really important because you kind of get caught up in the adrenaline of the moment and you want to make sure that you, you are the right home for the child you're being asked about. You get you know, two minutes, three minutes. You're allowed to say, can you give me five minutes and I'll call you back. I mean, it's very quick. What kind of things were on your list? Um, we were comfortable with most things, but we wanted to know what we were getting into. So we would ask about drug exposure. We asked about alcohol exposure. We asked about developmental delays. We asked about why they were taken into care. We asked if there were other family members who were trying to care for that child because we, we signed up for the foster care system in the hopes that we would adopt. We wanted to give a child a forever home. And because children are moved from home to home to home to home, we thought being a permanent option would be a good thing to be. But we would ask our questions and then um, we would be given very minimal information. And then you can say, you say yes or no. 
And so one of the very first calls we got um, was for a child who lived in our same town. Um, and we had been told that most children who came into care would not come in to our town, that they were usually from further away, but he was in our, in our town. Um, and at first they thought he was uh, a toddler, like one, one years old, and he'd been found. That was the word they used, found in an apartment alone. And he'd been left there with no food, no water, dirty diaper, no clothing. And we, you know, I had, I had really wanted an infant. So we kind of went round and round. Will we take this child? And um, Eric and I both said, yes, and this is our community. Uh, while we've been living here, hiking in these beautiful mountains, he's been being harmed. Um, yes, we will take him. And we went about preparing our home for him. Um, and then we got a call back and got additional information. And he wasn't one, he wasn't two, he was three years old and he was severely, had been severely neglected and had his um, thriving had been affected by that. And so we ended up saying no after that, that we weren't, we weren't equipped to take, take him, which was a huge shattering experience. Um, here we got a phone call for a, a boy who was within walking distance of our home and we said no. It turned out he got, he got a better placement. So it's also a good reminder that you are not the only one and that sometimes it's right to say no, but it was very difficult. There were various calls that you and Eric said no to. Tell me about the kind of conversations you and he would have in those high-pressure, frenzied minutes to decide whether or not to take this child into your home and how it changed maybe the sense that you had of yourself. I, I got fully rolled by those calls. They were so difficult for me. Sometimes we said no because the child had, had needs we weren't capable of meeting. Um, sometimes we said no because we knew there were family members who wanted to adopt. Sometimes we no, said no just because the situation was too difficult. And it, it uh, wrecked me. I can't think of another word to say, say besides that. It, it shook me to the core. Who am I? What does it mean that I say no to children in need? You know, I built my whole, my whole writing career uh, about responding to people in pain. Uh, how do we respond to the suffering of others? So that was how I approached it. And Eric was different. He, he said, you know, we're saying no all the time. That's what it means to be human. We're saying no all the time to people in pain. And this is just one example of that. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm, but I'm saying no to a particular child, someone who's called me on the phone, who uses my name, who tells me the child's name. Um, and still I say no. It was, it was very challenging. About a year after you began this process in Idaho, you got a call from a social worker called Grace. And what did she tell you? Um, she told us that there was a three-day-old baby girl in need of a home in a town that was a couple hours away from us and, and could we come get her? We said yes right away. Uh, we asked our questions and um, it was 11 a.m. I remember it was 11 a.m. And by 2 p.m. we were holding a baby. We were parents. Tell me about the first time you held her. It makes me cry just to think about it. It was um, so profound. I had, been, I had been worried that I wouldn't be able to love someone else's child. That's the way that adoption and foster care are talked about here. People say I've considered adoption, but I always wanted a child of my own. And I always believed every child that we bring into our lives belongs to us. And every child we bring into our lives also doesn't belong to us. They are these mysterious strangers that we are called to love and tend. But I had in the back of my mind this worry, what if I can't? What if I'm wrong? What if I can't love this child? And my love was for her was immediate and fierce and protective, and, and it was for Eric as well. What did he tell you about, about his reaction to holding Coco for the first time? I don't know if I'm allowed to say swear words on the, on the show, but um, <laughs> he said uh, he felt this overwhelming desire to protect her. Like he said to me, if, if you come at her I will fuck you up, basically. I will, I, will, I will do anything and everything in my power to protect her. He said that it felt like all of the vulnerability and the precariousness of the universe had collapsed into this body. She was less than five pounds, um, and he held that vulnerability in his arms and, and knew he was called to, to tend her. When did you first meet Coco's biological mother? We met Coco's biological mother first at the courthouse, which... Just that fact shows you how this foster care system doesn't think through what is happening and, and who it's happening to. Um, this, this poor mother who had given birth to Coco two weeks earlier, whose 
body still showed the signs of pregnancy, who probably still was producing milk for this baby that had been taken from her. Um, we met outside the courthouse. We went through security together. You know, I wheeled Coco through the security system in her stroller. And when we got through, Coco's biological mother said, can I hold her? And so I handed this five pound baby to her mother and she held her. We had to wait in the hallway, this cold, horrible hallway. And she just held her baby and whispered, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that was another one of those moments, like answering those phone calls and saying no, where I thought, oh, the way I understand the world is, is not right. I have to reorient. I have to, um, this is not what I thought it was. Did you know much about Evelyn or, or why her daughter had been taken into care? Um, we didn't know much at first, and it was something actually uh, that that kind of revealed itself and something that I have kept private for Coco because I didn't want um, people to read expectations onto her. I wanted her to have a fresh start. Um, but I will say that most most infants that are taken at, at birth, it's usually due to exposure or to an unsafe living environment, mostly due to exposure to drugs. And in that first court appearance, where you and Eric and Coco and Coco's birth mum were all there. Did Coco's birth mother accept the judge's decree that, that Coco should be with you at this point, that it wasn't safe for, for her to have her baby? Yes, very much so. She knew um, on some level that she couldn't provide a safe home for this for this child, and she agreed to what the judge said. So... That meant that, that you had Coco with you at home. Tell me about her as, as a baby. What was she like? She was calm and um, beautiful. She had the most beautiful blue eyes. She smiled right from the beginning, which I know is not something that, that infants and newborns do. She was wiggly and giggly and curious. Um, as time went on, we would go and whenever we would wake her up, either, either from her bassinet or, or from her crib later, she would just wiggle, like her whole body would wiggle. She was just the most wiggly, smiley, happy, calm, easy, easy baby. She loved the bath. She had a set of um, sea-themed bath toys that she loved to squeeze and squeak. She loved to squeak her feet along the edge of the tub. She loved to have water poured on her. I have a, a cloud bath toy that one of my friends who's an artist gave me, and she loved to watch the rain fall on her. She loved to be in the water. Did you share your love of the outdoors? with her? I took Coco on a walk almost every single day. Um, and we would, I would tell her things like, if you get to stay with us, you'll see these maple leaves come out. You know, if you get to stay with us, this will be the park where you're, where you'll play. If you get to stay with us, this will be a herd of elk that visits the field by our house. Eric put her hands in the snow. We put her feet in the river. How did Eric's relationship with Coco change when you went away with friends for a weekend? I went, so the only time that I went away with friends while we had Coco, I went on one book event and then I went away with friends. Um, Coco got croup. Of course. <laughs> of, of course. course. <laughs> yeah, and I was far away. I was many hours away. Um, but I think it was the best possible thing because um, Eric said that was the weekend he became a father that she had been a baby that he was taking care of. And that weekend he became a father and she became his daughter. He told me it felt like she was, she was his whole universe and he was hers. You know, right from the very start, there was this possibility that Coco would be taken, that she'd go back to live with her birth mum. Did that ever make you hold back a little in your love? Do you think, Sarah, was there ever any, like a kind of protective barrier there? No, <laughs> I wish. I mean, I, I wish Eric says to me about a lot of things like this is only going to break your heart. And yeah, but I don't have another choice. That's not how I live in the world. I, I don't really know how you can hold back from an infant. You know, I had a friend in the very beginning who I told her I was scared and she told me that she had been, she's a, she's a mother and she had a very, very premature baby, like in week 20 or 21 or something. And um, she said that she left the hospital one night and thought, I don't know if I'll go back. I don't know if I can take it. I think my, my child's going to die and I, I don't know if my heart can take this. And that she made the decision that she was going to love her baby for as long as her baby was alive. And she said to me, um, Coco needs your full on in loveness. And then she said, I'm going to start making a quilt. And I, I just carried that. I just, I was all in every single part of my being was, was in love with Coco and dedicated to her care. 
how much contact did Coco have with her birth mother in these early weeks? In the very beginning, before before that court date, she had almost none. Um, and then after the court date, they started doing weekly visits. Um, they were either an hour or, or 90 minutes, and they had to be supervised. Uh, Evelyn was deemed a flight risk, uh, which meant that they thought she could take the baby and run. And I remember at one point, um, she came to one of the early doctor's visits, and the social worker told me, make sure you keep your body between Evelyn and the door. And I thought I had heard her. I was like, what? Did you just say keep my body between Evelyn and the door? And she said, yeah, she's a flight risk. You have to you have to make sure she's never alone with the baby, um, which was just something I hadn't really ever considered. As time went on, where would they meet, Sarah? Um, sometimes I had to drive to meet to meet her in a town in between where we lived. Um, but most of the visits happened in in the town where I live. Um, and they happened in, at a bank, which is Why just... Why a bank? It, it wasn't... They, so this is one of the ways that the foster care system is so weird. So they had determined it was unsafe for Evelyn to know where I lived, but it was safe enough for her to be with a, a baby and then eventually safe enough to for her to be with a baby on her own. So there were these community meeting rooms at this bank. Um, and so we would exchange the baby either in the parking lot of the bank or I would carry the baby into the bank and hand her to Evelyn. And there was this area of bank tellers, people who worked at the bank in the center of the bank, and they would watch like, what is going on? <laughs> who are these people? And I remember one day it was super hard. I left, I left Coco there and I, I was like crying. I was having a hard time. And I said to one of the tellers who I now know, who is now a friend of mine, I said, this is really hard. And she said, I know, honey. You know, it was like um, this strange public uh, experience of dropping a baby off and picking the baby back up. So we would, they moved from one hour, once a week to twice a week. And then it, it continued growing from there. It can be, it can be painful, hard to let someone else hold your baby, just hold them when you, when you were fearful for them. What was it like handing her over? What, what would go through your mind? What, what would you do when, when Coco was with her birth mom? Evelyn was very different from, from meeting to meeting. And sometimes the meetings were back to back. So it would be very different from Wednesday to Thursday or Thursday to Friday. Um, and sometimes she was just completely put together. She had, you know, her hair was newly dyed and she looked great and she was very alert. And then sometimes the very next day she'd be out of it, you know, sitting on the curb, smoking, very disheveled, not really concentrating on, on what was happening. Um, but she was always very tender with Coco. Coco was not her first child. She she was very comfortable holding babies and, and she loved her. And I remember one day the social worker asked me to be the supervisor. Somehow the supervisor couldn't attend. So I had to sit in the room and um, I was in therapy at the time. I think I had several therapists <laughs> during this time, but um, my therapist said to me, you know, you should go and you should remember and record in your mind that tenderness. You might need to remember it someday. And so that's what I did. I just watched her with her child. Coco was her child. It's such a murky area. You know, Sarah, both of our, our countries have a history of taking children away from families that they shouldn't have, and that's caused enormous suffering down generations. How were you squaring that reality with the fact that you wanted to keep this baby girl more than anything? I, you know, it was, that was really difficult to me. I, I, I understand the history of stealing other people's children and then the racist history of that in the United States. Um, uh, Native American children were stolen from their parents and African-American children and children of color are at a, an alarmingly high rate continue to be taken from their parents. Uh, Coco is white, her mother's white. Um, so that experience was different for them. So I, I understood politically, we don't want to live I don't want to live with a government or a government system that says um, I can take your child because you're too poor or too gay or too black or too feminist or too atheist or too whatever they've deemed is not does not make someone a good parent. Um, I understand that we should do everything in our power to work to support families to stay together. At the same time, I don't think reunification uh, without supports is is always the right situation. Um, and I don't think it's the end goal. And, and they treat it as once that happens, all supports disappear. In terms of your situation with Coco, there was something called a family group decision meeting. Where was that meeting held? 
This is another example of the need for civic spaces for people to have difficult personal meetings in public. Um, it was held at a place called Idaho Joe's, which is a restaurant. So I remember vividly, Eric and I walked in and we had, we were carrying Coco in her car seat and the woman was like, three for lunch? <laughs> we said, uh, nope, uh, we're here for some foster care thing. And she just kind of pointed towards the back and this exit door opened into this almost like a hidden room. And that's where the social workers were and the counselors and Evelyn and her friends that she'd brought to support her. And that was the meeting where um, she gets to have a say in what her treatment plan looked like, what she would need to do in order to be reunified with Coco. And what became clear to you at that meeting? That was a, a very difficult meeting for me because I think I had been in denial about what was happening. You know, the whole meeting was about the return home plan. So they would say when, when Coco goes home, when Coco returns to her mother, when Coco's reunified. And I, I had been told by social workers that Evelyn was what they called a poor prognosis. They said, basically, there's no way she's going to do what needs to happen. And almost 100%, you're going to be able to adopt Coco. And it became clear at that meeting that, that that was not the plan at all. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Sarah, in those first months of caring for Coco, how were you feeling towards Evelyn? Coco's birth mom. Um, I wanted her to disappear. I, I wanted her to go away. <laughs> I didn't want her to succeed. I was hoping she would fail in her treatment plan because I wanted to keep her daughter. Part of the, I, I had never experienced a lot of the emotions that I experienced in foster care. I, I experienced that where I was wishing harm on another human being. I experienced intense, intense rage, like the kind of rage that fills your whole body. I experienced helplessness, which is maybe one of the worst feelings, but I also experienced a kind of love that I had never experienced before. As you were wrestling with this tenderness towards this little baby and these new feelings of, I don't know what the right word to, to use is, animosity maybe even towards her mother, what conversation did you have with your therapist that helped you come to a new kind of peace with that, that conflict inside yourself? I have the most incredible therapist. Her name is Juliana. She's not like other therapists. She, um, she, she doesn't only listen. She helps you uh, become your biggest, best, truest self. She's interested in right human relations and whatever we do that impedes that, she wants to move it out of the way. So she basically told me, and I will never forget this conversation. I have my, I, I talked to her on the phone. So I was in the basement of my house in the, in the, crying um, because I, I wanted to die. I thought I was going to die if I had to give Coco back. That was the feeling I had. I had spent so much time just kind of leaning over my counter with my head on it, crying. And Eric saying, like, I have, I don't, I've never seen you like this. What is going on? And she basically told me I had to turn, I had to turn 180 degrees around. Um, she said, we can't wish harm on another human being to get what we want. That's not who we are. She said, Evelyn has had a horrible life. She's showing the desire to change her life in order to take care of her child. And we have to root for that. We have to support that. Um, we have to cheer for that. She said to love Coco is to love Evelyn. And um, she said, this child might save Evelyn's life and you don't need your life saved. Um, she said, your life is not worth more than her life. So all of that together, I mean, it makes me sweat just thinking about it. You know, it's like, um, it's this almost this conversion moment. Like, okay, okay, who, who, who do I want to be in this world? Do, she said, you're going to have to turn it around. You're going to have to start loving her. You're going to have to, this is what stayed with me. She said, someday you're going to have to look Coco in the eye if you get to keep her. And you're going to have to say, your mother was beautiful. 
makes me cry. So think about it. Your mother was beautiful and she loved you and she did everything she could to try to keep you. And if she, if she succeeds, then you can walk away clean. You'll be sad, but you can walk away clean. And if she, if she doesn't succeed, you can look your daughter in the eye and say, I did everything in my power to help your mother. You say it's a, it was almost like a conversion moment, but our feelings don't usually get transformed so quickly. Although you had that as your ideal, how hard was that to live that intention? How hard was it to live that in practice? It was a pra- it was a practice. I'm glad you used the word practice. It was a practice. Like I knew that was where I was headed. It was like a horizon. And I used to do this, uh, the loving, the practice of loving kindness, the meditation. It's a, it's a Buddhist practice, I think. The one I did was, may you be safe, be healthy, be happy, live with ease. And it was like magic, actually. I would do it. And, you know, you could do it for a difficult person. And I always did Evelyn as my <laughs> difficult person. Or a person who was suffering, I always did Evelyn. And it was crazy. When I would do it, and then I would do it right before I would bring Coco to meet with Evelyn. And when I would do that practice, when I would meet Evelyn, she would hug me. She would laugh at my jokes. I was always trying to crack jokes. She did not think I was funny most of the time. But when I did this meditation, she would, she would laugh. She would thank me. She would look at me in the eye. She would hug me. When I didn't do the meditation, she wouldn't even meet my eyes. So it, it, that meditation transformed something about me to send the signal to her, I, I love you. And what line did you rehearse saying when other people were asking you about Coco and if you'd be able to keep her? What did you go to? You know, people, when people found out she was my foster daughter, she, they would, that we might have to give her back, they would visibly step back. It was like they couldn't be near. It was too much. They would say, I couldn't do that. I'll pray for you. I'm thinking about you. And they would, then they would always ask about her mother. And so I started just saying, um, I'm cheering for Evelyn and we're hoping to keep Coco. I tried to hold both of those things because that was true. Those were true, even though they were, they were in tension with one another, they were true. What was it that Evelyn had to do in order to get Coco back? It was kind of basic and kind of enormous at once. She didn't have housing, so she had to secure housing. Um, she struggled with addiction, so she had to overcome addiction. She had to get employment. She had to get a working car. She had to secure her finances. She had to take parenting classes. There was a, a fairly long list of things that she needed to do. And she had to change her whole life, really. Her whole entire life. Yes. And she had lots of support while Coco was in our care. So as you mentioned, at first, the, the social workers had told you that Evelyn was poor prognosis, which is such an awful term, but indicating that they didn't think she would be able to make this extraordinary personal transformation to make her a safe person to have her, her baby back with her. How did you start to realise that actually the situation was different than you'd been led to assume it might be? It felt very sudden, actually. It felt like I'd been going along one path that um, reunification was unlikely. And she had, Evelyn had other children in foster care in other parts of the country. So I thought, well, if, if she hasn't been deemed safe for those children who are older, then how can you put this you know, tiny infant um, back in her care? Uh, but it became clear just one day out of the blue, the social worker kind of announced it. We're going to reunify. Uh, so this is what the plan is. And after that, she sent me a text. I remember she sent it by text uh, when they were going to start doing overnight visits. I got a text um, from her saying that that's what was going to happen. And it was, a, I think, a Wednesday, and they were going to start overnights that Friday. And my mother happened to be on a plane to come visit Coco. Eric was out of town, and I, I called the social worker, and I was enraged. And I, I said, I have a life. We have, we have plans. My mother's on a plane to come visit Coco, and Eric's out of town. And she said... What does that have to do with anything? And it was clear at that moment that um, we were stranger care to her. We were strangers. We were useful while Coco needed a safe place to stay. And when they determined that Coco didn't need us anymore, we were not useful. And anything that we did to advocate for her was understood as sabotage. You asked one of the social workers if she would trust Evelyn to care for her own kids. How did she answer? It was at the courtroom. She had just, the social worker had just advocated for Coco to be returned to Evelyn for reunification and had set up the reunification schedule. And um, Eric and I were distraught. She pulled us into a room and, and I said, you have kids. Would you trust any one of your children with Evelyn? 
She said, I wouldn't let Evelyn babysit my dog for an hour. And I said, but you're going you're gonna to give her this baby. And she said, that's not the rubric. What did she mean by that? That's not the rubric. She meant the only thing they had to determine was that Evelyn had minimal parenting ability, one step above from do no harm. And if she had that, she had a place to live and she had a job. There was no reason that they could argue that Coco shouldn't be reunified. As Coco started spending more time at Evelyn's house, you started spending time there as well. How did that happen? Once the the visits became, they moved from 90 minutes to six hours to 12 hours and then to overnights. And part of what Evelyn had to do was to submit plans for the visits. And her plans were terrible. Her plans would be like, for the six-hour visits, go to the library. I mean, Coco was like an eight-month-old infant. She's not going to be psyched to be at the library for eight hours. Or um, when it became time for her to have 12-hour visits at Evelyn's home, she said, work on tummy time. And tummy time is not something you do with an eight-month-old. And so I would call our social worker and say, hey, you know, I think that she needs some supports. I think she needs some supports with how to be in relationship with her child and how to support her child's development. Can we just, I know you're not going to not give Coco to Evelyn because her plans suck, but can we do something to help her develop some parenting skills? So the social worker said, why don't you go? Why don't you go to her house? And I said, I don't think Evelyn wants me at her house, but if she wants me there, I'll go. And um, Evelyn did want me there. And it was actually um, one of the most beautiful times in my life was going to her house. Uh, so I found myself driving Coco down to Evelyn's house and um, we sat in her home and she had Coco in her lap and we sat on the floor and we, we rolled this toy back and forth and we talked and we talked about all the things we'd never talked about. Evelyn asked me if I'd been told she was a poor prognosis. Evelyn said, I, I bet you wanted me to fail. I could say to her, I did. I wanted you to fail. And then I realized as much as I love Coco, I have to love you just that much. She lost her daughter to me and I lost my daughter to her. And we understood what each other was feeling. And Evelyn was also the only person in the system who saw me as a mother. You know, it was her daughter who made me a mother. That one of the first overnights happened on Mother's Day weekend. And Evelyn gave me my first Mother's Day present. She gave me this little teacup and a yellow rose planted inside. And she said, happy Mother's Day. And she was the only person in that system that understood that I was mothering her daughter. She was the only person that honored me that way. And I honored her. I honored what she had done. And I, I could see the love that she had for her daughter and for all her kids. Even though she made decisions that might not have looked like love on the outside, I could see she loved them fiercely and she wanted them back more than anything. You and Eric were given a date, June 12, 2020, when Coco would be returned to Evelyn. How did the three of you spend the morning? Um, so, you know, I have a background in theology and I was going to be an Episcopal priest and Eric and I met in divinity school. So we decided to create it like a ritual, you know, um, and our friends, uh, collected children's books and delivered them to us. So we had the children's library to gift her. We had, um, all these clothes that Coco could grow into. We had written Evelyn a letter. We had made a photo book, a photo album of our, our year together, we had just thought through every single part of it. Um, but, you know, we had to wake up that morning with our wiggly, giggly girl and try to give her a normal day when we knew her entire life was about to change. And we, it was important for us that she felt joy and that she felt love and that she didn't feel any fear. Um, so that's what we tried to do. We gave her a normal day and then we drove her to the meeting site and we gave all these gifts to Evelyn and we gave her her daughter and... Um, then we came home to an empty house. What do you remember about yourself or what do you remember yourself doing over the weeks that followed? Um, I wailed a lot. You know, I, um, I, I told a friend of mine who texted me and asked, how are you? I said, I sound like a wounded animal. And she said, you are a wounded animal. I was grieving and it's a grief that other people don't recognize or they think, well, you always knew she was going to leave. What did you expect? It was, it was brutal. Eric and I just cried and cried and cried. I mean, it was, uh, we lost a child. That's how it felt. What did Eric do with Coco's clothes? Eric um, put Coco's clothes in a bag 
and refused to wash them and carried them around. We had fed her avocado that day and he kept the pit of the avocado on his dresser in his closet. He um, had pictures in his closet of her and then he took them all down. He refused to look at any pictures of her. In the beginning, Evelyn was texting me pictures of Coco and I actually even was childcare for Coco and I went to her first birthday party. In the beginning, we, we kept a connection, but Eric said he didn't want to see her unless she was coming home again. It was too painful. And all I wanted was to see her. I just wanted to see her. So all this, this pain of loss, but Coco was with her mom and at first things seemed to be doing okay. And then what sort of stories did you start hearing? Um, well, she, she stopped responding to my texts. I have the text thread. It's like, I ask questions, she, she doesn't respond. I ask questions, she doesn't respond. And then I just started texting, sending love, sending love, sending love, nothing. I became, a, 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 I became obsessed. I tried to find her. On, I found her on Facebook. I would like monitor her Facebook page. I monitored people that I knew knew her. I monitored people that I knew knew people who knew her. You know, I was trying to catch a glimpse of, of Coco. And I came across some really distressing posts from people who knew her about what was happening. And I kept asking social workers for help and they kept telling me that the case was closed and basically to mind my own business and that there was nothing I could do. And then when it became clear that they had disappeared, um, that there had been open reports in Idaho about Evelyn and what was happening. um, And she fled to another state, which I can't name. Then I would call that state and they would insist she was in Idaho. And then I call Idaho and they would insist she was in the other state and this went on for quite some time. I mean, I made phone calls three, four times a week for months looking for her. And it was it was terrifying. I knew she wasn't safe and there was nothing I could do and no one else would do anything either. It's just like the definition of a nightmare, I think, even more, much more painful than, than handing your child to a family is the thought that she's at risk and you are unable to do anything. That's the helplessness I was talking about in the beginning. I have never felt that before where... You know, a young child, she was a little bit over one, then she was one and a half, that she was in an unsafe situation and that there was literally nothing I could do. And there was nothing that any system would do to help me either. Nobody, Nobody wanted to do anything to help this child. Just before she turned two, Coco was taken back into care. You and Eric were listed as her kinship carers, but who was she placed with? She was... She came back into care and they placed her in a stranger care placement. They placed her with people she did not know. They placed her in the home where her brother, who's much older than she is, her half-brother, was living in foster care. They placed her with that family. And when we first found out she was in care, we packed all of our stuff and we drove to the state where she was because we thought, oh, of course, they'll put her back in our care where her family, we're the only family she's ever known. Um, But they refused to basically even talk to us. You did finally make contact with Evelyn. Where was she living? With uh, Coco's biological father, who had been released from prison and was was back and was part of what what was going wrong. And Evelyn Evelyn, um, was kind of under his spell. You hadn't had any contact with Coco's birth father before. What kind of person was he? What did he talk about on the phone with you? I discovered in this in this process, this hellscape that we've had to walk through is that I'm very susceptible to addicts, to people who struggle with addiction. I'm, I'm very um, drawn in by the kind of world that gets created around those struggles, um, the promises, the charm, the threats. So at first, the father and Evelyn wanted Coco to be with us. And they actually made their wishes clear by signing guardianship papers. They said that we were Coco's guardian and that they wanted her to live with us and not with this other family. But then when basically they tried to extort us and in a kind of when we refused that, they withdrew the papers and um, that was, that kind of ended that. What were you most scared of when you and Eric would, would be trying to make sense of this new, as you say, hellscape that you were in and Coco was in, what was your biggest fear? Honestly, my biggest fear was that Coco would be killed. I, I, I can't, there's no other way to say it. This was a very violent, unsafe place for her to be. And I knew she was in danger. Um, 
So once she was in foster care, I was relieved. I was glad she was with that family instead of with Evelyn or, or with the birth father. And that was my biggest fear. My, my second fear was that Eric and I would be harmed. Honestly, uh, the birth father made um, some threats to us that were very terrifying. Um, it was a brutal experience. You know, we, we kept packing up our car and going and we would think we were going to get her. Then they wouldn't even let us see her. We had rented a house at, in this other place and we didn't even get to see her. And then we'd pack all our stuff back and come home. And then something would shift in the case. Like the parents would say that they wanted her to be with us. So we'd pack our car up again and we'd drive there and we'd stay in the same house. And, and then we'd have to come home again without, without her. And this happened over and over again. I was afraid that our fight for Coco was putting her in danger. The foster care system saw us as a threat. I felt like despite us, they might put her with her biological father. I thought that that was a real outcome that could happen. And um, I didn't want our fight for her to put her in danger. And, and I said, you know, I don't want to quit. I don't want to walk away, but I'm afraid fighting for her is, is going to cause her harm. Um, so Eric and I um, kind of pulled back from what we were doing. We had a lot of lawyers. We still have lawyers. Um, and uh, let her be with the foster family where she was living. But recently there's been a, a turn where um, we now Zoom with Coco every Thursday morning. So we get to see her and um, it is the most beautiful, fun, glorious 30 minutes every Thursday morning. Eric and I wear these funny animal hats. We have like a bunny and a frog and a jellyfish and um, butterflies and We've sent her toys so that we have the same toys she has. And we, we do kind of parallel play on the screen. And um, she's giggly. She's the giggly, wiggly girl that we knew, you know, and she says, um, that's funny or silly, Eric, or I farted, you know, and it's just like, um, you know, so beautiful. And then, and then the screen goes dark and she's gone. So are you just living Zoom call to Zoom call? In terms of your relationship with Coco, can you imagine something beyond that? I want Coco to come home. I want her to come home to us. Um, that is my biggest, boldest, most beautiful hope. Do I think it's likely? No. Uh, but we will be here forever and for her, and we will do anything that she needs. I, I wrote Stranger Care as a love letter to her, and I want her to know that we fought for her and that we continue to fight for her and that we will be her champions for the rest of her life if she'll have us. And this is not the end of your motherhood story, Sarah. What happened in your life two weeks ago? <laughs> um, <laughs> you're making me cry through this whole interview, Sarah. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm the mother to a, an infant, to a baby boy, uh, a forever baby boy uh, that Eric and I brought home from the hospital two weeks ago. And uh, we're over the moon. It's an adoption. We adopted him and it's an open adoption. And he'll always know his birth mother, who is one of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever met in my life, who gave us the biggest gift of, of trusting us with her child. And he will always know her. Congratulations. Thank you. What, what has this process been like? You, your experience of the foster care system was so brutal, really, for everyone involved. What, what's this experience of open adoption? Has it been different? It's different in every possible way that you could imagine. I mean, I had, I had really thought that foster care was kind of this more ethical way to take care of a child. And the more I was in foster care, the more I realized I was complicit in a very broken system. You know, by the time a child is taken into care, all, all of our systems, all of our social networks have failed. It's not clean at all. It's, it's very complicated. And it's children taken from, from parents who want to keep them. Adoption can be done in a very ethical way. And the agency with, that we work with in Idaho is extremely ethical and careful and has incredible supports for birth mothers and birth parents. And it's been beautiful and profound and um, incredible. The birth, the birth mother spent the weekend with us this weekend and um, we got to go walking together with the baby and uh, we know her family and she knows ours and, and we're family now. Sarah, you said that you, you hate that question. Do you have kids? You want to know, tell me about your family instead. So when someone says to you, Sarah, nice to meet you. Tell me about your family. What do you say? <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I have the I have the most extraordinary family, and it looks nothing like what I thought it would look like. Um, 
know, this this weekend when we were with the birth mother and her mother as well was with with us. I thought this is this is extraordinary. These are some of the most generous, powerful, courageous people I've ever met, and now they're my family too. You know, we took our baby to his two week old checkup in the. Most of the nurses know us. They know they knew Coco, and now they're just like over the moon, like running out of the offices to come squeeze this baby. They're like, it's like our whole, you know, I realized our whole community was carrying our grief for Coco, and now they're carrying our joy for this new baby. Um, but this nurse didn't know us, and she said, Is this your first? And we said, No, actually, we were foster parents to an infant, blah, blah. And she goes, Oh, but this is your first biological baby. He said, nope, <laughs> not our first biological baby either. He's adopted. I remember this moment in the hospital. We, we were at the hospital when he was born, right after he was born, and he was getting his hearing checked. And the, the check was kind of cold and distant to us. And I had called the birth mother into the room to say, oh, you might want to come be part of this hearing test. So, so she was there and her mother was there and Eric and I were there and our little baby was there. And we were all like recording and laughing and hugging each other and and the tech was being really cold, 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 cold. It was weird. And then when the birth mother and her mother left, the tech turned around and she said, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. She said, um, I placed my child for adoption when I was in high school. And I wish I'd had that open adoption. And she said, and now I've adopted a child and, and I have an open adoption with, with the child's parents. So she was just like her, I had misread her coldness. It was, she was just trying to keep her emotions in check, you know, and, it, and that was how the whole floor felt. They were all celebrating this more family, more family, more family. We, we can all tend each other. We are all related. We're all kin. We're all family. Congratulations. Thank you so much for being my guest again on Conversations. Thank you to share this. Thank you. listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.